Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. The State Department will sanction several dozen Israeli settlers involved in attacks on Palestinians, barring them from traveling to the U.S., An anonymous U.S. official told Axios that the settler visa ban was assembled in direct response to a request from President Biden, who asked his cabinet to assemble a list of individual entities engaged in violence in the West Bank or, quote, actions that significantly obstruct, disrupt, or prevent efforts to achieve a two-state solution, close quote. U.S. officials said the administration, quote, decided to impose sanctions against Israeli settlers because it concluded that the current Israeli government is not seriously attempting to stop or prevent the attacks against Palestinians, close quote. Walter, news or phone news? Uh, Very, very low level news. I mean, it, it seems to me this is really one of the ways that you see that presidents always sort of use the Israeli, you know, Israel Palestine uh, issue is it's a way of, you know, in addition to the foreign policy side of it, there's the domestic politics side. And so President Biden has really angered a lot of people on the left wing of the Democratic Party. And I must say the White House interns were hearing this week are so, so disturbed that the interns in the White House had to rebuke the president of the United States (laughs) for... uh, for po- serious foreign policy failures, I think I think we all stand with the interns at this at this critical hour in our nation's history. But this was, in a sense, this is the smallest possible thing that you could do that would have the a significant political impact in the U.S. And the political impact uh, in the U.S. was, I think, much more the point of this than than the international impact. I don't think they that they certainly don't mind sending a signal to the Netanyahu government that they uh, they remain committed to the two-state solution and they don't like what's been going on on the West Bank, but um, it's not going to change very much. It's not going to change anything. All right, our second story. Math scores for American students plummeted to an all-time low on international exams that marked the first comparison of global achievement since the pandemic upended education, according to a new OECD report. Data released this week show a 13-point plunge in math for American 15-year-olds on exams given last year to 620,000 students in 81 countries. The relative ranking of the United States, however, improves and across the board. It's now sixth among 81 countries in reading, 10th in science, and 26th in math, up from 29th in 2018, primarily because other countries that once outperformed the U.S., France, Portugal, Iceland, and Norway, and others, dropped by even more. So, Walter, everyone's getting worse at math, it seems. Is this news or phone news? No, it's, uh, I suppose it's encouraging that, you know, what they say, you know, if you're a zebra and you're worried about the lions, you don't have to be fast. You don't have to be the fastest in the herd. You don't have to be faster than the lions. You just have to be faster than one other zebra. So watch out, Norway. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think a lot of this is obviously, I think, more related to COVID and lockdowns. And while I have no idea, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, that's more a commentary about how much of an impact lockdowns had on the educational system in a lot of countries. It does remind me, though, of uh, 
something that Samuel Johnson said. He was asked as an older man whether he thought the schoolboys in England were learning less or more than they were when he was a boy. He says, well, he says, I think they're getting caned less than we were. But on the other hand, I think they're learning less so that what they gain at one end, they're losing at the other. Maybe we need to get back to some good old you know, corporal punishment in schools. Maybe that'll teach the kids some math. All right. Final story of the week. Israeli defense officials who have been receiving advice from their American counterparts on their campaign in Gaza might have noticed a new investigative report in the Washington Post regarding joint U.S.-Ukrainian planning for Ukraine's ill-fated counteroffensive this spring. The article is full of officials from both countries trying to blame each other for the failed operation, so take everything with a grain of salt. But still, U.S. officials, including Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, were reportedly very confident that a mechanized frontal assault on Russian lines was feasible for Ukraine and that the U.S. could help transform Ukraine's defense-first military into a U.S.-style combined arms offensive force in a matter of months, while the Ukrainians were reportedly far more pessimistic from the beginning, fearing catastrophic losses from attempting to advance on entrenched Russian positions without air superiority. Walter, is this report news or faux news? I wouldn't call it news. It's it's interesting and it's significant, but I think people who'd been following this uh, didn't need the Washington Post story to tell them both that uh, the Americans had been urging the Ukrainians into a uh, an ill-advised frontal assault and that the assault hadn't worked. I think if you want advice on how to lose a war, you should call the Americans. Um, you know, we could explain our brilliant mix of counterinsurgency strategies uh, with mission creep, uh, rural pacification, you know, uh, 21 years of failure in Afghanistan. Um, we're, you know, we are really, really good at producing these outcomes, you know, and, and, and as a superpower, we can sort of afford it. You know, oh, well, this didn't go well in some little country none of us can quite pronounce. And we don't even remember why we were there in the first place. So, eh, you know, no democracy in Iraq. Well, let's sort of move on. I'm sure there's something else to do somewhere. But if you're a small country and you're fighting for your life, you actually have to think about war in a different way. Uh, So uh, my guess is that the Israelis and the Ukrainians would probably do better talking to each other than either would do taking military advice right now from the United States. It's just not making me happy to say that. Do you think there are going to be consequences of this in other parts of the world from countries that depend very heavily on coordination and planning with their American counterparts, maybe Japan, South Korea, others? Or is it still the case that the U.S. military is so much bigger and more powerful and more technically advanced and has so many more resources that they really don't have a choice. I wouldn't quite put it that way, Jeremy. I think, you know, the problem for the Ukrainians and in a sense for the Israelis is we're not doing enough for them. Both of them would welcome, you know, if the U.S. had said, here's some, we're going to send you some F-35s and pilots and some F-22s. And so we're going to, we're going to let you fight you know, these kind of high-tech combined operations the way we do, the Ukrainians would have been thrilled. Um, In the same way, the Israelis, you know, would would like everything we can possibly send them. Uh, It was the combination of, in, in the Ukrainian case, we were extraordinarily generous with advice. 
we had so much lovely, good advice. Uh, we're just a little bit stingy on the air power thing. Uh, so that's not the, the Japanese and the Koreans are in a, in a, in a really re- very different situation. All right. That does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. As we noted at the end of last week's episode, Walter, Henry Kissinger died on November 29th at the age of 100. Our listeners should read your column on Kissinger from earlier this week for your take on his life and legacy as a whole. But today I want to focus on Kissinger's legacy in the Middle East, not least because the comparisons between the current Israel-Hamas war have had echoes from the beginning in the Yom Kippur War, which began 50 years earlier on October 7th, 1973, just a few days after Kissinger was sworn in as Secretary of State. So when Kissinger starts out at the State Department, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but I think the Egyptians are firmly in the Soviet bloc and still committed to Nasser's plan of uniting the Arab world to encircle and destroy Israel. By the end of this story, the Egyptians flip to the Western bloc, the noose around Israel's neck is broken, and Sadat and Begin sign a peace treaty. So essentially the U.S., not the Soviets, deliver Israeli concessions to Egypt at the price of peace and also of breaking the back of Soviet power in the Middle East. This is an astonishing feat of diplomacy. What, what's the story here and how did Kissinger make this happen? Well, there, you know, it really was an amazing turnaround, but I think you're not giving enough credit to the central actor in this that was Anwar Sadat. And uh, Kissinger, you know, what is Bismarck said that for a diplomat, you need to be able to to hear the footsteps of of God Almighty passing and grab the hem of his garment uh, to be carried along. And to some degree, that's what I think uh, Kissinger had the um, both the luck and the wisdom to do. The Americans in the 50s had really tried to bring Nasser into the U.S. camp. Uh, and the argument that they were making was, look, with American technical experience, our help in helping you develop a military, uh, with economic development, uh, technological development, we can we can we have more to offer you than the Soviets do. And the reason that that Nasser never listened, never fully accepted this from the U.S. or didn't accept it at all, is because there. The one thing we didn't want to help him do was the thing he most wanted to do, which was to turn Egypt into the center of a united Arab world, Uh, that he wanted to be kind of the Garibaldi of or the Bismarck of Arabia and unite the Arab world into one power. We didn't want that to happen because we didn't want basically we didn't want one country to control the oil of the Gulf, that that Nasser's plan would have inevitably involved the annexation, conquest, or whatever of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. So we don't want that to happen. So Nasser understood shrewdly enough that we would never give him everything he wanted and turned to the Soviet Union. The 67 war destroyed that dream. Nasser lived in on in power a bit more but sadat as his coming in as his successor sort of understood that actually egypt really was not going to be the leader of the arab world that was not egypt's future egypt's future was actually going to be to develop egypt the egyptian economy and so on and that there again 
Now he's back to where the United States sort of wanted him to be, Egypt to be, which is if you just want to make Egypt good, and and so we'll help you, and and we can help you more than the Soviets can. Remember that when when Sadat comes to power, the uh, the Israelis basically have occupied Sinai to the Suez Canal, and there's no traffic going through the Suez Canal for Egypt. That's huge. Tolls from the Suez Canal are a major source of income for Egypt. Egypt needs to get that canal open. And what uh, Kissinger is able to do, what Kissinger ultimately realizes, not right away, no one did, that Egypt is ready to move in a different direction, that Egyptian interests are now aligned with American interests. And furthermore, that for Egypt, instead of being the leader of the Arab resistance to Israel, it makes more sense now uh, to to reach a peace agreement with Israel and that the Israelis are ready, especially after the, the Yom Kippur War, are ready to engage seriously and let Nasser have what he wanted. The, Egyptian, the Israelis had already withdrawn once from the Suez Canal in the Sinai crisis of 1956. They've been there, done that. So what Kissinger had the genius to see was that all that these countries that used to not be aligned in terms of their interests, actually now there was a possibility. And he began to kind of lay the foundations and it worked brilliantly. I would say up until the Obama administration, when President Obama decided that that it was time to let Putin back into Syria and, uh, you know, sort of enter a new era of Middle East history, one marked generally by chaos, war, and mass slaughter, um, that the Kissinger's achievement was was really an enduring and a profound one. And to this day, sound U.S. policy in the Middle East, I think, would follow something like Kissinger's approach. We spoke last week about how the current U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, in his meeting with the Israeli War Cabinet, reportedly warned the Israelis against actions they believe are necessary to accomplish their goal of crushing Hamas. And there's been a lot of speculation about, you know, what the point of those leaked remarks was. Was it to send a certain signal to the Democrats back home that the Biden administration is working to restrain the Israelis? Is the Biden administration actually working to restrain the Israeli operations in the south of Gaza? Um, but, you know, one thing it reminded me of is is Kissinger uh, also angering the Israelis, I think, when he intervened to prevent the total defeat of the Egyptian army to allow Sadat to save face and make him more amenable to some sort of compromise, I think. Do, do you think Biden and Blinken believe they're kind of repeating some version of Kissinger's success here, maybe by restraining the Israelis in Gaza and uh, maybe even treating the Iranians in this situation, I guess, as the as the Egyptians? Or what, what are they missing about the balance of power here that Kissinger might have seen more clearly? Well, I, I don't actually think Hamas is very much like Egypt under Anwar Sadat. Um, I think there, first of all, you're always going to have U.S. secretaries of state and presidents trying to influence Israel. Maybe often, you know, Israel's charging too hard. We wanted to pull it back a little bit. And Israel will never be satisfied with American support, no matter how great. My old friend, Les Gelb, used to be president of the Council on Foreign Relations, wonderful guy. Uh, Les once said, uh, and he's a great friend of Israel too, but Les once said, here's what Israel really wants. 
It wants to be the 51st state, but not pay taxes. <laughs> Who can blame them? <laughs> yeah, right. He's like, perfectly rational. <laughs> I do remember, too, once hearing the uh, Israeli ambassador to Mexico saying, you know, that there was that famous saying of, of Porfirio Diaz, poor Mexico, so uh, far from God, so close to the United States. He said, you have no idea how much we envy you. We're much too close to God and much too far from the United <laughs> States. So, you know, there are always going to be tensions within the U.S.-Israel relationship, and each side is going to have its own priorities. For Biden, uh, for, for uh, Netanyahu and the Israeli government, Given Israeli public opinion, uh, they want to sound as tough as possible. And also, frankly, in terms of, of regional things, the Saudis and the Emiratis want, want Hamas crushed, crushed, crushed. Uh, they would like to see it squashed flatter than a bug. In 2014, they were against Obama, who was trying to get BB to uh, the, the Israelis at the time to give Hamas a, a, an off-ramp from a war. So Bibi wants to reassure the the regional powers that Israel intends to emerge from this strong and with no doubts about its commitment to its own security. On the other hand, Biden and the United States don't want to don't want it to look too much as if we are just endorsing every Israeli air raid, every strike on every elementary school in in Gaza. So it, we want to soften our image, even as Israel is toughening its approach. But on the substance, I mean, it, you know, it, it does appear to me still that we are, the United States is supporting Israel in Gaza to a pretty extensive degree. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. I should say that we've been relying more and more for tip of the week suggestions from our listeners who we love hearing from. So please continue to write to us at wrm at tabletmag.com and let us know the book or music or travel or other recommendations you want to hear from Walter. So for this week, we've got Jesse from Dover. I assume that's Delaware, not England. I probably should have checked. But in any case, Jesse is visiting North and South Carolina for the first time, Walter, during his upcoming winter break. And he wants to know your number one travel tip for each as a Carolina native. I would say in in North Carolina, I, I love the mountains. Um, Asheville, North Carolina, Hendersonville, North Carolina, down to little Switzerland and around Mount Mitchell. They're just beautiful country there. Depending on the time of year, it's maybe not quite as beautiful in the winter, but if uh, but it really is just lovely. Um, and to see uh, the Vanderbilt House at um, near Asheville, I, I would I would go. South Carolina, you know the 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 Low Country, the coast is beautiful. The, you know there's some famous beaches like uh, Hilton Head and so on. Those are nice. City of Charleston is is well worth seeing. I've always liked, there are a couple of old um, private places that are now public. Hopcaw Barony was Bernard Baruch's hideaway. Um, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt famously visited it in the spring of 1944. Brook Green Gardens up closer to Myrtle Beach. It's lovely. But you can't, you can't really go wrong 
in the coast of South Carolina. All right, there you have it. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom and Will Cummings at Hudson. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time.